Chapter Thirteen of Good Stories for Great Birthdays. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. Good Stories for Great Birthdays by Francis Jenkins Olcott. February 22nd, George Washington, the Father of His Country, Part 2. Friend Green. At Utah Springs, the valiant died. Their limbs with dust are covered o'er. Weep on, ye springs, your tearful tide. How many heroes are no more? Led by thy conquering genius, Green, the Britons they compelled to fly. None distant viewed the fatal plain, none grieved in such a cause to die. From Utah Springs by Philip Franau. It was at the siege of Boston. The troops of the colonies were raw and uncouth. They were camping separately. Washington was inspecting their camps for the first time. He saw that their shelters were made of anything the soldiers could lay hands on. Turf, bricks, sailcloth, boards, or brushwood. Each soldier seemed to live and do as he pleased. But when Washington reached the camp of the Rhode Island troops, he perceived neat tents pitched, soldiers well drilled and equipped and under perfect discipline he was pausing to look around him with pleasure and approval when a young officer vigorous and finely built stepped forward to greet him his frank manly face beaming with a cordial welcome the young man was nathaniel green commander of the rhode island troops it was he who had trained them after studying the maneuvers of the British troops in Boston, Nathaniel Green was born a friend or Quaker. When a boy, he worked in his father's forge and helped on the farm. He was an eager to read. He got together a little library of his own. He studied hard. He liked best to read about military heroes. When he grew older, although he was a friend, he joined the Rhode Island Militia. Later he was appointed Rhode Island's commander and led her troops to Bunker Hill and the Siege of Boston. Washington liked and trusted him at first sight. Later his confidence became friendship. At Valley Forge, Nathaniel Green gave up active duty in the field, much to his sorrow and regret, and became quartermaster general he gave up his ambitions in order to help washington relieve the sufferings of the troops as quartermaster general he was soon able to supply them with some blankets clothes and food all of which congress had failed to deliver later green's reward of faithful service came washington appointed him commander of the army in the south it was a post of great danger, but he conducted his military operations with such courage and sagacity 
that they led on to completed victory for the American arms at Yorktown. This is what John Fisk says of Nathaniel Green. The intellectual qualities which he showed in his southern campaign were those which have characterized some of the foremost strategists of modern times. Nor was Green less notable for the sweetness and purity of his character than for the scope of his intelligence. From lowly beginnings he had come to be the most admired and respected citizen of Rhode Island. Light Horse Harry The American Congress to Henry Lee, Colonel of Calvary. Notwithstanding rivers and entrenchments, he, with a small band, aired the foe by warlike skill and prowess, and firmly bound by his humanity those who had been conquered by his arms. In memory of the conflict at Paulus's Hook, 19th of August, 1779. 1. The most dashing and romantic young soldier of the Continental Army was Light Horse Harry. His real name was Henry Lee. He was a small, alert young man, mischievous sometimes, but always brave. He was a cavalry leader. He commanded the famous Legion of Light Horse which took part in so many heroic battles. He was one of Washington's most trusted generals. His charm and dauntlessness delighted Washington, who showed warm interest in his promotion. Perhaps this was because Light Horse Harry's mother had been Washington's young sweetheart in his schoolboy days. My lowland beauty, he had called her, but she had married a Lee, and not Washington. Light Horse Harry had many adventures as romantic and daring as himself. 2. Light Horse Harry was a favorite at Mount Vernon. He did not stand in any reverential awe of the great Washington. One day, as they sat at table, Washington mentioned that he wanted a pair of carriage horses and asked the young man if he knew where they might be bought. I have a fine pair, General, replied he, but you cannot get them. Why not? Because you will never pay more than half price for anything, and I must have full price for my horses. This bantering reply set Mrs. Washington laughing, and her parrot, perched beside her, joined in the laugh. Washington took this familiar assault upon his dignity with great good humor. Ah, Lee, you are a funny fellow, said he. See, that bird is laughing at you. 3. When Washington died, it was Light Horse Harry who was chosen by Congress to deliver the funeral oration before both houses. It was in this oration that he said those famous words he survives in our hearts in the growing knowledge of our children in the affection of the good throughout the world first in war first in peace and first in the hearts of his countrymen pious just humane temperate and sincere 
uniform dignified and commanding the purity of his private character gave effluence to his public virtues washington irving and other sources retold captain molly proudly floats the starry banner monmouth's glorious field is won and in triumph irish molly stands beside her smoking gun moll pitcher twenty-two years old was dubbed captain at the battle of monmouth and very proud she was of the title her real name was molly hayes she carried drinking water on the battlefield to refresh the soldiers so they nicknamed her moll pitcher at monmouth her husband a patriot belonged to proctor's artillery moll was with him on the field six men one after another were killed or wounded at her husband's gun it's an unlucky gun grumbled the soldiers draw it aside and abandon it just at that moment while moll was serving water to the soldiers her husband received a shot in the head and fell lifeless under the wheels of that very gun moll threw down her pail of water and crying lie there my darling while i revenge ye she grasped the ramrod that the lifeless hand of the poor fellow had let fall and rammed home the charge then she called to the artillerymen to prime and fire it was done pushing the sponge into the smoking muzzle of the gun she performed the duties of an expert artilleryman while loud shots from the soldiers passed along the line the gun was no longer thought unlucky the fire of the battery became more vivid than ever moll kept her post till night closed the action and the british were driven back by the patriots washington himself leading them to the attack it was then that general green complimented moll on her courage and conduct the next morning he presented her to washington who received her graciously and gave her a piece of gold assuring her that her services should not be forgotten washington conferred upon her the commission of sergeant and placed her name on the half-pay list for life the french officers charmed with her bravery gave her many presents she would sometimes pass along the french line with her cocked hat and get it almost filled with crowns she was always welcome at headquarters she wore a cocked hat and feather and an artilleryman's coat over her petticoat one day washington found her washing clothes and stopped to chat with her well captain molly he said are you not almost tired of this quiet way of life and longing to be once more on the field of battle truth your excellency she replied and ye may say that for i care not how soon i have another slap at them redcoats bad luck to them but what is to become of your petticoats in such an event captain molly oh long life to your excellency she said 
and never do ye mind them at all at all sure and it is only in the artillery your excellency knows that i would sarve and divil a fear but the smoke of the cannon will hide my petticoats george washington park kirstis and other sources the soldier baron the good baron found time to prepare a new code of discipline and tactics and this excellent manual held its place long after the death of its author as the blue book of our army john fisk while the ragged patriot army with washington starved froze and suffered at valley forge there was speeding down from boston on a fast saddle horse a man who was to help them win the war his keen hazel eyes looked pleasantly out from under bushy brows his mouth smiled with good cheer but he held his head in military fashion the glittering star of a foreign order was on his breast and he carried a letter of recommendation from benjamin franklin to george washington commander-in-chief of the american army he was baron steuben a famous soldier and german hero of the seven years war he had offered his services to washington to train the army explaining that he wished to deserve the title of a citizen of america by fighting for her liberty at his side rode his young and waggish french interpreter in scarlet regimentals faced with blue his bright eyes were always on the watch for a glimpse of pretty american maidens behind the two came their servants with the baggage it began to snow heavily night fell they drew rain at an inn it had a bad name and it was kept by a tory i've no beds bread meat drink milk or eggs for you said the tollen tory landlord and neither steuben's remonstrances or oaths could make him change his mind steuben's blood began to boil bring me my pistol he cried in german to his servant and the landlord who was smiling maliciously suddenly felt a pistol pressed against his breast can you give us beds shouted steuben yes cried the affrighted man bread yes meat drink milk eggs yes 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 and the trembling landlord scurried around the table was quickly laid and food set out then after a substantial supper a comfortable night and a hearty breakfast the baron and his men mounted and were off again to cut the story short he was soon at valley forge serving with washington and training the troops they had little expert military training before the baron drilled the soldiers himself he took a musket in hand and showed them how to advance retreat or charge without falling into disorder not only the soldiers but the generals colonels and captains watched him eagerly and with enthusiasm 
Soon the camp was a bustling military training school. The men almost forgot their sufferings, so intent they were on learning. They worked incessantly and with tremendous energy. But the baron made it lively for them, for he had a quick temper. He swore at them in three languages, and when they did not understand that, he called his aide to help him out in English. Some of the men had thrown away their bayonets, and some had used them for roasting meat. But the baron soon drilled them to use bayonets with such good effect that when later a column of them stormed Stony Point, they took it in a bayonet charge. He, the bluff Steuben, never failed in bravery on the battlefield. At Monmouth, while the American troops were fleeing in panic, the baron kept doggedly on with his face to the foe. Meanwhile, Washington, furious and fiery, rallied the soldiers and led them back to victory. It was now, says John Fisk, that the admirable results of Steuben's teaching were to be seen. The retreating soldiers immediately wheeled and formed under fire, with as much coolness and precision as they could have shown on parade. Bluff, generous, kindly, old Steuben still served the country after peace and independence came. Then he settled down on his farm of 16,000 acres, the gift to him from the state of New York, in recognition of his patriotic services. Throughout the war, says John Fisk, Steuben proved no less faithful than capable. He came to feel a genuine love for his adopted country. Father Thaddeus, hope for a season, bade the world farewell, and freedom shrieked as Cosico fell. Thomas Cadwell. What do you wish to do? said Washington. The young Polish officer with a rugged face held himself erect. I come, answered he, to fight as a volunteer for American independence. What can you do? asked Washington. Try me, said the young Pole, his dark eyes flashing pleasantly. So Washington tried him. He was Thaddeus Kozikuso, born in Lithuania and a patriot of unhappy Poland. Poor Poland, dismembered patriotic Poland. Again and again she had been betrayed and divided by her greedy neighbors, Russia, Prussia, and Austria. But always the fires of patriotism had burned in the hearts of the Poles, and though they had been forced to bow their necks to their enemies, they had never bowed their hearts. And it was a romantic story that had sent young Cosico post-haste from Poland to America. He was poor, but of good blood. He had fallen in love with a beautiful and clever Polish girl. Her father was a haughty, rich state official. He would not give his consent to their marriage, so the young lovers eloped. The father pursued them with his men. 
Kosciko fought like a lion to defend his beloved Ludwika, but her father's men wounded him so severely that he fell senseless on the field. Then her father carried Ludwika home and married her to another man. When Kosciko came to his senses, his love was gone. Her handkerchief stained with his own blood lay beside him. He took it up reverently and placed it in his bosom. Thus disappointed in love, he had left Poland and come to America to forget his grief in fighting for freedom. For Kosciko had been a patriot and a lover of liberty for all men since his early boyhood. Washington placed him on his own staff. Soon he found that the young man had talent and was an experienced army engineer. He commissioned him chief engineer. Kosciko rendered great service to America, but his most important work was on the defenses of West Point. When our war for independence was over, he returned to Poland. He became her leading patriot, defending her against the invasions of Russia, Prussia, and Austria. Father Thaddeus, his men called him, as he led them into battle. During his famous defense of Warsaw, he was badly wounded on the battlefield and captured by Cossacks. He was thrown into a Russian prison, and there he was kept until after the death of Catherine the Great. He was released by the new Tsar, who admired him and wished to give him a brilliant commission in the Russian army. But Kosciko refused his offer and went into voluntary exile. He still hoped that some day he might serve Poland. His wounds were yet unhealed. There was a saber cut across his forehead. There were three bayonet thrusts in his back. A part of his thigh had been torn away by a cannonball. Around his forehead he kept black band tied over the saber cut. He went into exile, and the people of Poland believed that he was dead. It was nearly seventy-five years after that red-letter day in Lithuania on which Thaddeus Kosciuszko had been born. It was in 1814. France and Russia were at war. The Russian army, as it advanced against Paris, was barbarously pillaging the valley of the Seine. The soldiers were burning the cottages of the poor peasants over their heads and ill-treating the children, women, and aged folk. Among the Russian troops was a Polish regiment, and while its soldiers were savagely burning and looting the little houses, an old man with a scar across his forehead rushed suddenly in among them. Raging like a lion, he shouted in Polish, When I commanded brave soldiers, they never pillaged. I should have punished them severely. And still more severely would I have punished officers who allowed such disorders as you are all now engaged in. And who are you, my pretty old man? cried the officers with sneers and laughter. Who are you that you dare to speak to us in such a tone and with such boldness? I am Kosciko, 
was the quick reply. Each man stood fixed to the spot. Each was paralyzed with astonishment. There, before them, with flashing eyes, stood Poland's hero, the Polish soldier's father Thaddeus. Then the men threw down their arms to the ground. They cast themselves at his feet. They sprinkled dust upon their heads, as was their wild custom at home. They crept close to him, hugging his knees and begging for his forgiveness, for the forgiveness of their father Thaddeus. When Cossico died in Switzerland in 1817, there was found in his bosom, next to his heart, the blood-stained handkerchief which his lost love Ludwika had dropped beside him so long before. Today, in a little chapel at the foot of the lime-planted hill, the Linderhof, there is a bronze urn in which lies the once brave heart of Thaddeus Cossico. The Little Friend in Front Street he entitled himself to the gratitude of the entire country. Ex-President William H. Taft He was only a little man in his office on Front Street, Philadelphia. Only a little man, but how great. Without his help, our war for independence might have been lost. He helped to save the country not with a sword, but by giving all the means that he had and expecting nothing in return. This little man, his little friend in Front Street, as James Madison called him, was Haim Salomon, a Polish Jew and a patriot. Though Robert Morris, who was superintendent of finance during the War for Independence, Haim Salomon loaned money to establish the government and to pay the soldiers. Without his money, Washington could scarcely have held the army together. And all the while, the little friend in Front Street was refusing any interest on his loans, and some of these loans were never repaid at all. And not only financed the nation, but generously made personal advances of money without interest to members of the government in order that they may keep on in their patriotic work. When any member was in need, all that was necessary was to call upon Solomon, said James Madison. But it was not only by financing our young nation that Haim Solomon showed his patriotism, he was born in Poland of an intelligent, educated family. He knew many languages. He was a friend of Kosciuszko and Polanski. Because of oppression, he left Poland and came to New York City. He married and settled down to business. He soon found, however, that the Americans were heavily oppressed by England. So he threw himself heart and soul into the cause for independence. He became a patriot. He was arrested by the British, imprisoned, tortured, and condemned to death. He managed to escape and reach Philadelphia safely. There he opened his broker's office in Front Street. He became a great financier. Henceforth, he unselfishly devoted his brains, his energy, and his wealth 
to help win the war for independence and build up our republic farewell my general farewell december fourth seventeen eighty three the war for independence was over thursday the fourth of december was fixed upon for the final leave-taking of washington with his officers this was the most trying event in his whole career and he summoned all his self-command to meet it with composure knox and green and hamilton and steuben and others assembled in francis tavern and waited with fast-beating hearts the arrival of their chief not a sound broke the silence as he entered save the clatter of scabbards as the whole group rose to do him reverence casting his eye around he saw the sad and mournful countenances of those who had been his companion in arms through the long years of darkness that had passed shoulder to shoulder they had pressed by his side through the smoke of the conflict he had heard their battle shout answer his call in the hour of deepest peril and seen them bear his standard triumphantly on to victory brave hearts were they all and true on whom he had leaned and not in vain advancing slowly to the table washington lifted the glass to his lips and said in a voice choked with emotion with a heart full of gratitude and love i now take leave of you i most devoutly wish that your latter days may be as prosperous and happy as your former ones have been glorious and honorable a mournful profound silence followed this short address when knox advanced to say farewell but neither could utter a word knox reached forth his hand while washington opening his arms took him to his heart in silence that was more eloquent than all language each advanced in turn and was clasped in his embrace washington dared not trust himself to speak and looking a silent farewell turned to the door a corps of light infantry was drawn up on either side to receive him and as he passed slowly through the lines a gigantic soldier who had moved beside him in the terrible march on trenton stepped from the ranks and reaching out his arms exclaimed farewell my dear general farewell washington seized his hand in both of his and wrung it convulsively in a moment all discipline was at an end and the soldiers broke their order and rushing around him seized him by the hands covering them with tears this was too much for even his strong nature and as he moved away the, his broad chest heaved and tears rolled unchecked down his face passing the white hall he entered a barge and as it moved out into the bay he rose and waved a mute adieu to the noble band on shore the impressive scene was over j t headley condensed from washington's legacy or his letter to the governors of all the states i now make it my earnest prayer that god would have you and the state over which you preside his holy protection 
that he would incline the hearts of the citizens to cultivate a spirit of subordination and obedience to government to entertain a brotherly affection and love for one another for their fellow citizens of the united states at large and particularly for their brethren who have served in the field and finally that he would most graciously be pleased to dispose us all to do justice to love mercy and to demean ourselves with that charity humility and pacific temper of mind which were the characteristics of the divine author of our blessed religion and without a humble imitation of whose example in these things we can never hope to be a happy nation george washington eighth of june seventeen eighty three a king of men hand in hand with rare soundness of judgment there went a completeness of moral self-control which was all the more impressive inasmuch as washington was by no means a tame or commonplace nature such as ordinary power of will would suffice to guide he was a man of intense and fiery passions his anger when once aroused had in it something so terrible that strong men were cowed by it like frightened children this prodigious animal nature was habitually curbed by a will of iron and held in the service of a sweet and tender soul into which no mean or unworthy thought had ever entered whole-souled devotion to public duty an incorruptible integrity which no appeal to ambition or vanity could for a moment solicit these were attributes of washington as well marked as his clearness of mind and his strength of purpose and it was in no unworthy temple that nature had enshrined this great spirit his lofty stature exceeding six feet his grave and handsome face his noble bearing and courtly grace of manner all proclaimed in washington a king of men john fisk when washington died crape enshrouded the standards of france and the flags upon the victorious ships of england fell fluttering to half-mask at the tidings of his death chief justice fuller let his countrymen consecrate the memory of the heroic general the patriotic statesman and the virtuous sage let them teach their children never to forget that the fruits of his labors and his example are their inheritance the senate of the united states seventeen ninety nine the following stories about Washington and the War for Independence may be found in Good Stories for Great Holidays, Three Old Tales, The Cherry Tree Tale, Young George and the Colt, Washington the Athlete, Washington's Modesty, Washington at Yorktown, Washington and the Cowards, Betsy Ross and the Flag, A Brave Girl, general schuler's daughter a gunpowder story elizabeth zane the declaration of independence signing of the declaration 
of independence. End of chapter 13. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C.